Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. The Supreme Court wrapped up its October sitting, hearing eight cases ranging from voting rights to environmental law to deadlines for civil rights actions and everything in between. On today's Deep Dive episode, we're going to take a look at two of those cases that the justices heard, both of which involve the Legal Defense Fund. That's Merrill versus Milligan and Reed versus Gertz. Jordan, before we jump in with our guests, can you sort of set up uh, that last case, which involves a technical issue at the Supreme Court, which re- but which revolves around the conviction and death sentence of Rodney Reed? Sure. So Reed has been on Texas death row since 1998. He was convicted in the 1996 death of Stacy Stites. Stacy was 19 years old and engaged to a police officer, Jimmy Fennell. Reed is black, Fennell is white, as was Stacy, as was Reed's jury. And at trial, the state pointed to Reed's semen being recovered from Stacy as evidence that he was the killer. But Reed has maintained his innocence. He says he was having an affair with Stacy and that Fennell knew about it. Fennell was later convicted of sexually assaulting a woman while on duty. And so the issue in this case stems from Reed wanting DNA testing for crime scene evidence, including for the belt that Stacy was strangled with. The state doesn't want to test the belt. Reed pressed for DNA testing in state court, but that was denied at the trial court level and then up through the state criminal appeals court. Reed went to federal court, filing a civil rights suit challenging the state's DNA procedures, arguing he was denied due process. But Texas says Reed waited too long to bring the federal claim because he had to bring it right after the state trial court denial, not after the state appeal was done. Reed says that makes no sense because the federal claim is based on a challenge to state law, and it's the state appeals court, not the trial court, that ultimately decides what state law is. There's a circuit split on the statute of limitations question, and that's what the justices heard argument about on Tuesday. So Kimberly, should we bring on our guest who filed a brief in that case? Let's do it. Samuel Spital is Director of Litigation at the Legal Defense Fund. Sam clerked for Justice Stevens, and he has extensive experience litigating voting rights, civil rights, and capital punishment. That makes him the perfect guest to help us recap the October sitting. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank you for having me. So the Rodney Reed case was argued on Tuesday. You were lead counsel on an amicus brief for LDF in that one. But before getting to the Reed case, we got an orders list from the court on Tuesday morning before the argument, listing a bunch of petitions that were denied. One of those denials prompted a dissenting opinion in another LDF capital case from Texas that has some similarities to the Reed case. Can you tell us about the Andre Thomas case that was denied review? Yeah. So Mr. Thomas is on death row in Texas. He is severely mentally ill. He is on death row for a very tragic crime that he committed where acting pursuant to demons in his head and under the influence of schizophrenia and these delusions, he killed his estranged wife and their young child and her infant daughter. And he was doing so because he thought that In so doing, he was going to release them from from demons. And he tried to kill himself at the scene. Uh, He survived. He, and I apologize for the, the difficult facts, but I think they are important. He then subsequently gouged out his own eye shortly after this happened 
And then later he gouged out his other eye, again, acting pursuant to his very severe mental illness. The issue that was principally before the court in this cert petition was about racial bias that had infected the process. Mr. Thomas is black, his estranged white, his estranged wife was white, and that raised obvious concerns about the potential of anti-black racism, and in particular, the way that is manifested itself in attitudes towards interracial relationships involving black men and white women affecting the, the process. And so jurors were asked in pretrial questionnaires about their perspectives on interracial relationships. And several jurors expressed very direct animus against such relationships. In the words of one juror, we should stay with our in our own bloodline. And notwithstanding this, and notwithstanding the fact that it had been asked as a question on the questionnaire precisely because it's well understood that this kind of anti-Black racism expressed through fear or concerns about interracial relationships could affect the process, the appointed trial lawyers for Mr. Thomas did not ask any questions to three of the four prospective jurors who expressed these views. And for the fourth, they asked only very cursory questions. So after the case made its way through the appellate process, it got to the federal courts and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals denied relief in a two to one decision. And then we, along with Mr. Thomas's longtime lead counsel, filed a certiorari petition urging the court to grant review. And the court held the case for about a year, uh, indicating that at least some of the justices were thinking seriously about it. And then, as you said, ultimately denied certiorari, notwithstanding the strong dissent by Justice Sotomayor, joined by two, two of the other justices. I wonder, it seems like the Supreme Court has been particularly interested in racial bias injury deliberations. You know, just a few terms ago, we saw them say that, you know, this couldn't stand under really any circumstances. And just wondering why it is that you think that they didn't have that same kind of concern here. That's a difficult question. I think that we also thought that this is a case that would be concerning to the court and obviously was very concerning to three justices, one justice short of what we would have needed for a grant of certiorari. And I think that from my perspective, the court as an institution has made clear repeatedly that overt racial bias in the criminal legal system and in the capital punishment cases in particular is something that the court has said, we are really going to make sure that we address. And in the very famous and in some ways notorious case, McCluskey versus Kemp, the court said, we're going to engage in unceasing efforts to address when we see overt racial bias. And so it was quite disappointing here that the court, that there were not at least four votes to, uh, to intervene. Hard for me to speculate why. I will note that, you know, there has been a change uh -huh. in composition in the court, even in the last few years, and that could have uh, impacted the court's ultimate decision in this case. So, Sam, I'm wondering, I remember on Tuesday morning, Kimberly and I are sitting there in the press room before the arguments are about to start, and 
we see this come down from the orders list. And before you came on, I gave a bit of a background of the Reed case. So listeners will have some of the factual background by that point. And I'm looking at the cross-racial dynamic of the case, and that has some similarity to the Reed case as well. I was just wondering, since you're involved in both cases, did you see the orders list before the argument? And was that something that you were thinking about at all heading into it and any significance that that might have had? Yeah, so I was... um... I did not see the the read argument in person, so I I saw the orders list first, and then I I ultimately, uh, you know, read the transcript of the read argument. Um, I think that it's it certainly there are some real connections between the cases, and so um, you know, in Mr. Reed's case, there is also a real concern about the way that anti-black racism infected the process. Um, it's different because Mr. Reed's case is an innocence case. Um, but in both cases, you know, the need to have fairness in trials and particular capital trials when a jury is tasked with making the really awesome decision about whether or not the state is going to put someone to death, it's essential that courts do everything they can to make sure that racial discrimination and anti-Black discrimination doesn't infect that that process. And so in both cases, you see that really being an uh, issue at the fore and, you know, very troubling in both cases that these are cases that are not happening in the 1920s, 1940s, even 1960s, but, uh, you know, quite recently. And so getting into the Reed case itself a bit ahead of the argument, you were lead counsel on a brief for LDF. What were you all trying to get across to the court in the brief that you filed there? That's a great question. So, um, you know, in some sense, the Reed case, if you look at the legal issue, it may seem fairly technical because it's about the statute of limitations for litigating a claim that uh, you were denied access to DNA testing through state procedures that were fundamentally unfair. But it's actually really important because the way that the court resolves that question is going to have a huge impact in sort of access to justice for individuals who are trying to prove that they were wrongly convicted and that they have been denied access to the DNA testing that they need to show that. And one of the big points that we made generally, and then if I could come back to Mr. Reed's case specifically, uh, is that since the advent of DNA testing, one thing that we have seen is just how important access to DNA evidence is in addressing this problem of how anti-Black racism infects our criminal legal system. So in cases where DNA has played some role in an exoneration, 65% of those cases have involved a Black defendant. And in a very significant subset of those cases, it has been a situation where you have a Black defendant and a white victim, far disproportionate to uh, the sort of numbers of cases generally. So we're seeing, which perhaps tragically is not surprising, that we're really seeing proof that Black people, Black men in particular, are disproportionately being convicted of crimes that they did not commit and that they need access to DNA evidence to prove that. And so in Mr. Reed's case, he is trying to obtain access to evidence from the crime scene, including the murder weapon, which has never been tested. And the state is resisting even giving him access to that kind of testing, which could conclusively exonerate him for a crime that there is already very compelling evidence he is not the one he had nothing to do with. 
So, I mean, I think you made a very compelling argument with some of the statistics that you talked about. It's not lost on me that just earlier this week, you know, a, a really high profile case in Adnan Syed was also, um, you know, came down um, to DNA evidence and he was finally on his way to an exoneration. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, how often does this happen? I mean, you talked about percentages, but do we have an idea about how often these kind of lack of DNA evidence or mistakes in DNA evidence are happening? I think it's really hard to know. I think what we do know is that the cases we are seeing are the tip of the iceberg, because yeah. very sadly, most people, once they are convicted of a crime, even a serious crime, do not have access to attorneys. Um, there are many cases where, unfortunately, DNA evidence is not available. But mm -hmm. what we do know is that we are seeing in case after case, and you know, the examples that, that you just lifted up, we're seeing that prosecutors or attorneys for the state are resisting mm -hmm. providing access to the evidence which could provide a conclusive answer to, to what really happened. And that is something that I think is quite, quite troubling um, and something that I hope that sort of putting aside what happens in these court decisions, there is a change in perspective within prosecutors' offices where there's a recognition that it's really in everybody's interest if you have untested crime scene evidence to do the DNA testing to sort of conclusively determine what really happened. And then the final point I will just make is that we do know from the statistics I pointed out earlier, that in a very troubling number of cases, racial bias has been at play and has led to the wrongful convictions of black men. And so, Sam, you mentioned that you did review the arguments. I'm wondering just to ask in the first instance at a very broad level what your takeaway was from it. Yeah, I think that the justices were, a, a number of the justices were appeared troubled by the position that Texas was taking in that case. And I should note that I think it is increasingly hazardous to sort of predict outcomes from, from argument. I think uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago, maybe it was clearer from the argument mm -hmm. what would happen, but I think we've seen some, some significant cases in the last couple of years where maybe one would have gotten one sense from argument and a different sense from what happened. So I, I don't want to hazard predictions, but I did think that it was significant that a number of justices were skeptical of Texas's position and to get a little bit more into the weeds. So the issue, um, the more precise legal question in Mr. Reed's case before the court now is at what point the statute of limitations began running. And Texas is taking a position which was actually a little bit different than the lower court had taken in ruling in Texas's favor about the time that the statute of limitations would start running that would require litigants who are still in the state court process to essentially run to federal court even before the state process had completed and even before it was clear whether or not the state courts were going to deny access to DNA evidence. And that really doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense for fairness, for justice, but it also just doesn't make a lot of sense for judicial administration. We don't want people to you know, feel a pressure to go to federal court and perhaps having kind of competing litigation going at the same time. And so I did think that a number of the justices seemed very aware of those concerns. And on the subject of it being dangerous to hazard a prediction, 
I found myself struggling with that as well in this being the latest example of that because I want to tell you how I was thinking about the case and you tell me if you think that that's incorrect or you disagree with it in any way. Even though this is technically a civil case, I'm thinking about it as a capital case where as a capital defendant coming into this court, you have a 6-3 hurdle to overcome. And so despite whatever was said during the argument, I still walk away from that thinking that it is Rodney Reed's task to still overcome that hurdle to win the case. I'm wondering if that's the way you see it at all and what you think about that. Well, that's a, it's another very, um, very important question. We know that there is a six justice majority that is often skeptical in capital cases of the position of the person on death row. Mr. Reed's case is quite unusual because I think the evidence of his innocence is quite powerful already. Um, and so you know, to give a little more context for your, for your listeners, Mr. Reed was convicted and the only evidence against him was that his sperm was found uh, inside the body of of the the victim, Mrs. Mistites, um, but he had maintained that they had a consensual sexual relationship, which the prosecution and sort of going back to our earlier conversation ridiculed at the time and invoked this sort of anti-black racism, suggesting you know she would never have done that. She she's she was white, he's black, um, and actually there's evidence that the prosecution knew that wasn't true, that it was well known that they were in a romantic relationship and that there's very powerful evidence that actually her husband, um, who's a former police officer, was really the um, perpetrator, that he was upset about their relationship and that he himself actually confessed to having killed his, his wife. So there's so much evidence in Mr. Reed's case of innocence. There's so much evidence of anti-Black racism infecting the process. And I think there's also this just fundamental concerns about fairness. Why is the prosecution resisting access to the evidence that could, for there to be DNA testing to give us a conclusive answer? You know, I, I hope that even among the conservative six justice majority, there are a number of justices who will be receptive to those kinds of concerns. So it may not be the same level of mm that six to three background that, that, you know, one might have in other cases. Well, um, sort of piggybacking off of your comment about it being very dangerous to, you know, just walk away from arguments and say what the outcome is going to be. I wanted to talk about, uh, another case that the justices heard on October, uh, Merrill versus Milligan. And I think this is a different reason, um, why you might come out of the case, um, thinking that it's going to go one way versus the other. Before we get into oral arguments in that case, um, can you just give us a little of a high level view of what's going on here? What is it that the justices are considering in this case? Yeah, absolutely. This is a challenge and this is a case that LDF is lead counsel. My colleague, Joel Ross, did the, uh-huh. did the argument. Uh, this is a case challenging the congressional districts that the state of Alabama implemented after the 2020 census. And in those congressional districts, there is only one district out of seven where black voters have an opportunity to elect a candidate of choice. In the six out of the other seven districts, 
there is no opportunity at all for black voters to elect candidates of choice. So the result is that black voters who represent about 14%, represent only about, only have opportunities to elect candidates of choice in about 14% of the districts, even though they represent about 27% of the population. And Mm -hmm. in order to create a map like this, Alabama had to do something called crack, meaning sort of carve out or divide black voters across a very well-recognized community of interest, the black belt in the state, which is uh, poignantly the birthplace of the Voting Rights Act as well in, in Selma, Alabama. And Alabama cracked this traditional community of interest in, across four different districts. And by its own account, it did so in part to protect a white community of interest, which it said, um, which it defines as sharing a shared sort of French and Spanish colonial heritage. So the question before the, the Supreme Court is, uh, and I should, sorry, I should give a little more background. Um, so we filed suit under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. which is designed to address this kind of discriminatory districting, discriminatory gerrymandering. And uh, it was it's really a very straightforward case, as Justice Kagan pointed out during the oral argument. We went before a three-judge district court. Two of those judges were appointed by former President Trump. And the court unanimously held in our favor not just with respect to the ultimate outcome and granting a preliminary injunction in our favor, but on really sort of every key issue in the case, that this was just a very clear violation of Section 2. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court, and meaning that there needs to be a second district drawn where Black voters will not necessarily be able to control the outcome of every election, but at least have a fair opportunity to compete. The Supreme Court stayed that in mm-hmm. a five to four decision with Chief Justice Roberts actually joining the moderate liberal justices and decided that they would consider the case on the merits. And so that was what was before the court uh, at the oral argument in the Milligan case. I mean, I I think we started this conversation off by talking about, you know, um, not being able to really tell conclusively what's going to happen in a case from oral arguments. And that's, I I mentioned that here because I think if you just listen to oral arguments, you'd think, well, this is is an easy case. I mean, I think um, Justice Kagan called it a slam dunk. What strikes me about this case is that under our precedent, it's kind of a slam dunk. If you just take our existing precedent the way it is, and the three judges below all found this. The three judges below said, this is an easy case. It's not one of the hard ones. It's not one of the boundary line cases. Um, You know, in listening to arguments, it seems like that case was made. But I don't know if at the end of the day, uh, that's going to be the outcome. Um, and, And in particular, there were some questions at oral arguments that I hadn't anticipated about uh, these simulations of maps that uh, your group had run in order to kind of lay out, in order to make a showing, uh, all the showings that you need to make in order to make out a Section 2 claim. Can you tell us sort of what was at issue um, there, if you... Sure. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I'm glad because the simulations have caused a lot of confusion. Mm -hmm. Um, So we ran some simulations for a different purpose. It wasn't related Uh to our Section 2 claim. The simulations can be relevant. And so just to, I guess, backtrack and sort of describe what simulations are. Simulations are um, something that experts can run where they simulate what districts would look like if you use different criteria. And one of the challenges with simulations is that it is difficult for simulations to take account of every important redistricting criteria, something, for example, like a community of interest, which is not reducible to a mathematical formula. The other issue with simulations is that 
you have to decide, are you gonna run a thousand simulations? Are you gonna run 10,000? Are you gonna run millions or trillions? Because districts can be drawn literally in millions or trillions different of different ways. We ran some simulations to show that the map Alabama itself enacted would not have been enacted very, it would have been very unlikely to enact a map like that if it, if Alabama had not been considering race in an improper way. Mm. And so, and Alabama itself was quite critical of the simulation saying things like, you know, they can't take account communities of interest, all these sorts of things. Um, but then Alabama tried to sort of use those simulations to undermine our claim by saying that some illustrative districts that we had proposed were also not part of the universe of simulations. And now this gets into a very sort of technical area of voting rights law, but essentially in a previous case, the Supreme Court had said a plaintiff, in order to litigate a case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, has to present illustrative districts and additional illustrative districts where Black voters or other voters of color, depending on the nature of the claim, were at least 50% of the population of the district. That's not the text of the Voting Rights Act. That was, the court said, an important limitation in the uh, way that one understands Section 2. Mm-hmm. But to be clear, that's not the map that a state ultimately has to adopt as a remedy. Mm-hmm. It, the, the remedy is just, is there a fair opportunity, which sometimes may require a 50% district, but often would not. And in this case, there are many maps that would not, uh, that would give Black voters an opportunity where, which would not require a 50% population. But so essentially what the state is saying is that the simulations show that plaintiffs had to intentionally create uh, additional 50% black district. And of course we did, because the Supreme Court said in order to present a claim like this, this is something that you as the plaintiffs have to do. So the simulations don't actually do anything beyond show what that we provided the proof that we needed to, to provide to, to meet our claim. And yet Alabama is trying to use them, even though Alabama criticized them so much, and even though the simulations show that the map Alabama itself enacted would not have been enacted if Alabama had not used race in an improper way to somehow suggest that we did something wrong uh, by simply satisfying the criteria that the Supreme Court had laid out in this prior case. Right. And that that kind of um, kind of back and forth over these maps led to one of the um, kind of most I don't know how to how to put it, but just striking moments in oral argument that I've seen in my years covering the court where Justice Barrett was saying, why isn't it that, you know, a group should have to come forward and show that they can kind of make simulations of these maps without considering any kind of race before we can even kind of get into the other factors. Um, And then Justice Jackson, um, you know, newly sitting on the bench, you know, came in and said, well, do I have the question right? Why should we require this? Or does Justice Barrett have the question right? Why shouldn't we? Which just seemed like something that doesn't normally happen at oral arguments. Um, and I wondered if you um, had a position on who was right <laughs> in that case. I, I suspect that Justice Jackson wouldn't have asked it um, if she didn't think she was right. <laughs> so um, I would I would uh say it, I would approach it a little bit differently and uh, without answering your question directly and sort of say it like this. I, I think Justice Jackson's question and perspective showed how important it is to have her on the mm-hmm. bench and to make clear. And so to, you know, backtrack a little bit at a slightly higher level of generality, I think that the real conversation is about 
how appropriate is it for race consciousness to be Mm -hmm. part of a remedy? And are there sort of any kind of 14th Amendment concerns if a state is too race conscious? And Justice Jackson, I think very powerfully was making the point in her question that if you look at the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, it was very clear that those who wrote and those who enacted, those who voted for the 14th Amendment, all understood that the 14th Amendment was designed not only to permit race-conscious programs and race-conscious remedies, but for the very purpose of making sure there was a firm constitutional footing for such programs. And so to the degree that anyone would suggest that the mere existence of race consciousness is somehow a problem under the 14th Amendment, that that is fundamentally inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, which is important because a number of justices are of the view that the original understanding of a constitutional provision is is very important. To circle back just briefly to your question and address a little more directly, I would say that whichever approach one takes on the more narrow question, the, the plaintiff's position should still prevail because the simulations, again, you know, one could draw, you could do 10 simulations, you could do a million simulations. And the evidence in this case is clear that while we do not think that there is any such requirement, even if there were interest in the court in, you know, with what would happen with the race neutral simulations, or perhaps a simulation where race was considered, but at the same weight as many other factors, that those simulations would result in two districts where black voters did have an opportunity to elect candidates of choice. So, you know, either way, we think that it's a standard that that we uh, we satisfy. I have a question about what you and Kimberly were just talking about, Sam. Maybe this is just a semantic distinction without a difference, but just based on some of the commentary that came out after that exchange, I was interested in your thoughts on this. Do you think that in raising that point, Justice Jackson was doing originalism in a way that led to a progressive result? Or was it more of a, okay, you guys, meaning the Republicans, want to do this originalism thing. Here's where that leads you if you actually want to do that. I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, I um, I don't want to sort of hazard a... Uh, hypothesis about sort of what's going through Justice Jackson's head. I, I think what I would say is that I think it's clear to anyone who fairly engages with the historical record that those who wrote, drafted, enacted the 14th Amendment were doing so for the particular and specific purpose of remedying obviously a horrific and persisting legacy of anti-Black racism, of enslavement of Black people. And it is clear that there was no I, no thought that somehow this would prohibit the consideration of race to advance diversity, to achieve remedies, all those sorts of things. And I understand, and I think what your question is getting at is, this sort of deeper debate about originalism as a methodology of constitutional interpretation. I think whatever one thinks about how appropriate it is to focus on originalism, I think it is clearly 
fair and important to recognize what the animating purpose was of the 14th Amendment and to make clear that if one professes to care about that, one cannot suggest that a government program that is remedial or diversity seeking is somehow improper simply because it is race conscious. And so in that way, I do think that Justice Jackson was making a point that wasn't simply, um, you know, uh, I don't think it, there was any uh, artifice about that. I think she was, you know, just sort of speaking very directly to mm-hmm. this particular application of originalism. And so one last question I wanted to ask you, which is um, not particular to this case, um, but does kind of piggyback off of this idea that this has sort of been, whether or not you agree with the history or whether or not you think this is the way we should be doing it. As we talked about before, you know, a number of justices who have looked at this case or judges who have looked at this case think that this is a slam dunk under the way that the law has been interpreted by the Supreme Court for a long time. But we're seeing this current court, um, or at least the one right before Justice Jackson came on, though, don't think that's going to make that big of a difference um, with this regard. We're seeing it really um, engage in a new way of thinking, of challenging, you know, what we have perceived for decades to be the law. So we see it here in this voting rights case. Of course, we saw it last term in abortion. We're going to see it again in November with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which, um, you know, is a decades old law from the 1970s. I'm just wondering how, how do you as an advocate, as somebody who, you know, is practicing for the Supreme Court, how do you deal with that? What, what, what sorts of changes do you have to make um, whenever you're arguing to a court that just seems willing to kind of rethink um, first principles and and across the board? Wow. So yeah, that is the, (laughs) that's that's a, that's a tough question. Um, But I guess I would say a couple of things. I I think that um, one of the jobs as an advocate in those circumstances is to um, show the court that the first principles were correct And so this really gets to the conversation between Justice Jackson and Justice Barrett that um, race-conscious remedies, race-conscious government programs that have a remedial or sort of diversity-enhancing purpose that have been repeatedly upheld by the court, and it's with good reason they have been repeatedly upheld by the court. And so I do think that there is uh, additional importance from, and for an advocate as well, to really point out to the court why its prior decisions are very firmly grounded in the Constitution, in whatever sort of methodological framework the majority of the court is interested in focusing on. So I think that's one answer. I think the other thing I would say is that I do think that um, advocates, both in a particular case, and I think all of the attorneys that are part of, I'm going to say, the sort of Supreme Court ecosystem generally, the members of the Supreme Court bar, the the journalists who uh, provide such important coverage of the court, I think that everyone involved in that ecosystem has a role in uh, reminding the court as well that its legitimacy depends upon its adherence to the rule of law and to precedent. And I don't, without sort of talking about any particular case, and, and obviously there were some significant cases last term where the court departed from those principles, but that the court has 
promised us over and over, and the justices continue to promise us that they do take the rule of law seriously, that they are not simply a political institution. And that is only true if they act in that way. So the court cannot simply just disregard precedent because the justices may have decided it differently if they were uh, on the court when they decided the case. And so I think that the role of both the advocate in the specific case, and I think all of us who are sort of part of the, you know, the Supreme Court ecosystem, it, it is important for us to be part of a conversation that makes clear that the court's legitimacy is tied to the fact that it is going to continue to apply the rule of law and only overturn precedent in the very narrow circumstances where its own precedent permits it to overturn precedent and not just because there's a shift in the ideology of some of the justices. Well, thanks for that. I know we've kept you um, longer than we promised. I think we covered a lot, but really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the opportunity to be here. All right. That was a lot. That was a lot we covered there, Jordan. Yeah, Sam covered a lot of ground. He was a good sport for helping us out with all that. Well, the justices granted nine cases out of their so-called long conference at the beginning of the term that we haven't talked about yet. So let's go through each one right now. Okay, everyone. First up. Pencils ready? I feel like we have enough for one day. Perhaps we'll save that for our next deep dive episode, which will be on the November sitting, which includes a couple more potential blockbusters, including the affirmative action challenges out of Harvard and North Carolina. So until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at Jordan. News.bloomberglaw.com. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.